Well, brothers and sisters, if you have your Bibles, please, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 10 this morning. Exodus 10, we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 29. As Exodus itself has been slowing down as we've been making our way through these these plague cycles, as Exodus, the text, has been slowing down, so have we. As we read, the the last three plagues, as we read through them, the last three plagues themselves seem to slow down and their description gets stretched out and emphasized, uh, expanding in detail, really serving to heighten the tension. And it's all, of course, building toward the climactic moment of the devastating 10th plague and then the departure of Israel, the exodus at last from Egypt. As plague gives way to subsequent plague, they grow in their intensity, and each plague in its own way is bursting with symbolism in what the Lord is communicating. Each plague serves to keep on undermining the legitimacy of the false Egyptian gods, and this penultimate plague is no exception. So let's look to Exodus 10. First we'll read God's word, verses 21 through 29, and then we'll pray and ask for his help and blessing as we study it together. So Exodus 10, beginning at verse 21. This is God's holy word. Take heed how you hear it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another. Nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this day. May he write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Would you pray with me, friends? Lord, we do seek your illumination, your wisdom, your mind. And we ask that you would reveal yourself especially to us in your word. Grant us understanding today. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. A darkness to be felt. You ever experience anything like that? A few years ago, I was teaching a course for the seminary of the Presbyterian Church of the Gambia, West Africa. And in the middle of the night once, the power, the electricity went out, as as it did routinely, about 2 a.m. So no lights on. And this town is miles away from another town huge expanse of open land all around for miles. No, no such thing as light pollution. And it was an overcast night, so no moon to see, no, no twinkling stars to see. And so, as you might imagine, it was dark. It was dark, dark. And if it weren't for the cell phone flashlight powered by battery, it was true. 
you could not see your hand in front of your face. Now, I imagine that that experience was as nothing compared to what fell on Egypt that day, those three days in the ninth plague. Pitch darkness, it says in verse 22 here in the ESV translation. Pitch darkness. They did not see each other, verse 23. So out of fear for their own safety, rendered into this functional blindness, they stay put. They don't move. What's the, what, what, what recourse do they have? They can't see anything. They're going to stumble around, injure themselves. They just stayed put with nothing to do but to wallow in the misery as they sit under God's judgment here. You've heard the expression, darkness so thick you could cut it. Well, verse 21 describes it as a darkness to be felt. But you see, friends, it's more than just a dreadful nuisance. You may recall that along the way we've been commenting through Exodus on the reality of spiritual warfare and that the spiritual warfare aspect that stands behind all this conflict, behind all of these plagues that are raining down on Egypt, that ultimately this is not a showdown between Moses and Pharaoh or just between Israel and Egypt, but ultimately it's a showdown between God and Satan. And that's why we've noted that there is some measure of similarity in all religious systems. As the soothsayer priest of Egypt, as Pharaoh and his false religion, as his idolatry is really tapping into demonic powers, whether they realize it or not, that's why we've noted that there is some measure of similarity in all religious systems. There is. Because Satan is nothing but a cheap knockoff artist. He imitates the real worship offered to Yahweh, the real religion that is rendered to Yahweh in an effort to deceive and lead astray whomever he can with worship that looks and seems like the real thing. Consider scripture. Here's some you may know. Just a few verses from Psalm 48. Listen to them. Let them praise the name of the Lord. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. You know that from Psalm 148. But listen to this short little excerpt from Egypt's ancient liturgy, a hymn to the sun creator. Unique God, there is none besides him. You mold the earth to your wish, you and you alone. All people, herds and flocks, all on earth that walk on legs, all on high that fly with wings, let them give praise to their Lord. I don't believe for a minute that that is mere coincidence, the parallelism of language there. Now, the Egyptian who composed this may never have heard of the God of the Hebrews, but Satan is crafty. No wonder the Lord is so keen on tearing down the facade of this wicked deception that is Egyptian theology. So as we come to the ninth plague, we see once again the Egyptian deities are being dethroned before the very eyes of the people of Egypt. But also this plague is itself a reflection of the condition of Pharaoh's own soul and is a prelude of the great wrathful darkness that shall soon swallow up Egypt in the final plague, the death of the firstborn. Darkness, as we've said, is more than just a physical inconvenience. It is a motif, and it is a kind of exposition in its own way of the spiritual reality that is at play here in the heart of Pharaoh and in the kingdom of Egypt. So three things, three things that I like to use to guide our study this morning, all built off that motif 
of darkness, a religion of darkness, a heart of darkness, and darkness yet to come. A religion of darkness, a heart of darkness, and darkness yet to come. So first, a religion of darkness. And of course, here we're speaking of Egypt. Not that they worshipped darkness, quite the opposite, as we'll see in a moment, but that they, because they worshipped falsely, their hearts and souls were trapped in spiritual captivity, spiritual blindness, spiritual darkness. The spiritual condition of Pharaoh and his people is well described by Ephesians 4, verse 18. You know that verse. As those who are apart from the Lord, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, trying to bumble and stumble around in the dark and and not being able to see the hand in front of your face would be enough to frighten anyone. So they just stayed in place, as we see in our text. Utter paralysis upon the whole society. Even frozen in place in felt, felt tangible darkness. But more than merely frustrating and annoying, more than temporally startling, this actually would send Egypt into a spiritual crisis. Scholar Stephen Cork wrote this, We need to understand the place of the sun in Egyptian civilization before we can rightly begin to know anything about ancient Egypt or rightly begin to understand how devastating this plague would have been to them. Close quote. The Egyptians had Horus, maybe you've heard of him, the god of the sunrise. They had Aten, the god of the round midday sun. They had Atum, the god of the sunset. But the supreme deity in their national pantheon was Amun-Ra, who said, I am the great God who came into being of himself, he who created his names, he who has no opponent among the gods, Amun-Ra. Ancient pagan societies had plenty of gods in their pantheon, but there was always a chief deity. You, You who have studied mythologies will likely know this. For the Greeks, it was Zeus. For the Romans, it was Jupiter. For the Norse, it was Thor. But here for the Egyptians, their chief deity of all their hundreds of deities, Amun-Ra. Every morning, the rising of the sun in the east reaffirmed, in their understanding, it reaffirmed the life-giving power of Amun-Ra. And sunset represented death and the underworld. But the rise of Amun-Ra the next morning offered the hope yet again of resurrection. For the Egyptians, you see, it was a matter of faith that the eternally rising sun could never be destroyed, never be hampered, never be interrupted, never be frustrated. The brilliance of light and the flooding of sunshine throughout this desert kingdom was daily proof to them that their god Ra was enthroned and reigning and he was omnipotent, never to be shattered, never was Egypt to be overwhelmed as long as Ra reigned. And then suddenly... With, with nary the snap of a finger, Jehovah, the Lord of hosts, has plunged this mighty pagan kingdom into blinding, suffocating, impenetrable darkness. It gets worse for Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a sun worshiper. But more than that, he was regarded as the son of Ra, the, the personal embodiment of the solar deity. Egypt's king 
was Egypt's god. He was a kind of incarnation, they believed, of Amun-Ra as his son, as the embodiment of the chief deity on the earth. The heart of Pharaoh, who was the son of Amun-Ra, he maintained the cosmic order. He maintained uh, the balance and stability of society. Again, Stephen Quirk says, at the kernel of the civilization stands a special relation between the divine father figure of the sun god, the ruler of creation, and his solitary offspring on earth, the reigning king of Egypt. Now, boy, does that sound familiar. We said that Satan specialized in plagiarism and in cheap knockoffs. A supreme deity who has a a god-son deity that goes to earth in incarnate form. Satan can try to imitate and deceive, but it becomes all too apparent oh so quickly that it is not raw that brings balance and stability to the universe, but God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus, who in the words of Hebrews 1 verse 3 is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, who upholds the universe by the word of his power. It is not Ra who upholds the universe by the word of his power. It is the true Son of God, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Hebrew people here in Exodus get just a foretaste of that glorious reality as the Lord God Almighty brings Horus and Amun-Ra down in shameful shatterings, even as he exalts his own power, the word of Jehovah. So, verse 22, Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. The, the Hebrew, the original Hebrew language, in a very wooden, literal translation, it says this. There was night darkness, or there was dark darkness. You get the point. It's dark. You can't see. Some have suggested that the darkness may have had some natural cause, perhaps a solar eclipse. Now, that would have been shameful to Horus and to Amun-Ra to block out the sun as the visual representation of their power, Maybe. Uh, Perhaps it was one of the horrendous sandstorms that could kick up in North Africa and in Arabia. Not uncommon. Uh, During these blinding storms, Egyptians were forced to stay indoors as their land is covered with a dense brown cloud of sand and dust. Uh, That might explain what the Bible means by uh, darkness that can be felt, as it says there in verse 21. But in the end, these naturalistic explanations do not really satisfy what is being said, I think, by the text of Scripture. If the ninth plague was really such a common occurrence, like an eclipse or a sandstorm, then why was Pharaoh so undone by it? Why was he so troubled by it? No, once again, as we've seen in all the plagues, this is Yahweh, this is Jehovah's assault on Pharaoh. And in this instance, it's his assault on his supposed deity father, Here in the blotting out of the sun, it is not a mere solar eclipse that is taking place, but rather a theological eclipse that is taking place. Here, as one man put it, Jehovah eclipsed Ra. The true God eclipsed Ra. This is yet again an iteration of that theme that we've seen been playing out in all of these plagues. God, in a sense, is decreating Egypt. Like a, like a reversal of the wondrous acts of creation that God performed as outlined in Genesis chapter 1. One by one by one, we see them stripped away as God unravels Egypt, while at the same time preparing to form, to create, to constitute his people Israel as a nation. 
He's getting ready to liberate them from bondage. He's forming them. He's fashioning them. He's constituting them as a nation, while at the same time uncreating, decreating Egypt. Think back on the previous plagues, right? The God who made the waters, day two of creation back in Genesis. The God who made the waters turned the Nile into blood. The God who made green things grow in day three of creation, he destroyed vegetation with hail and with locusts. The God who made creatures swim in the sea and swarm on dry land, day five of creation, he brought death to fish and to frogs in those previous plagues. The God who made men and beasts on day six of creation, he sent them disease and even death. Finally, finally, the God who brought light out of darkness has now made the light fade to black. God snuffs out the sun in an undoing of day four of creation. And the God who said, be light, let there be light in day one of creation, here he says, be not, shine not, out. The magicians could not help Egypt. Pharaoh could not help Egypt. The other deities could not help Egypt. And now the chief deity, the supreme overlord of their theological pantheon and all of their religion, he is mocked, cast aside, and turned off as easily as a man puffs out a candle. Egypt will be made to know that God and God alone is the Lord as this religion of darkness is dethroned. So that's the first thing, the religion of darkness. But then the second thing that we see here is a heart, a heart of darkness. This miracle is a mockery of Egypt's religion, but it's also a reflection of the spiritual condition of Pharaoh's own heart. You see that in verse 20, and you see it again in verse 27. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it's evidenced yet again by by the attempted bargaining that Pharaoh tries to pull off here. This foolish negotiating that Pharaoh engages in. The the half-offer to agree to assent to the Lord's demands. You see it there in verse 24. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your your little ones also may go with you. Only only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. He knows what Moses is going to say. He's heard the Lord's demands numerous times already. Let my people go. How many times has Pharaoh heard this from Moses and Aaron's lips? Let my people go that they may worship me. But each time he, he tries to get Moses to compromise. To, to agree to a sort of half measure. Well, 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 fine, fine, if you have to go, but just don't go very far, Pharaoh says. No, Moses rebuts, we need to be far from Egypt because our worship will be a great offense, an abomination to them. We heard that a few chapters ago. Okay, Pharaoh says, well, you can go, but, but you can't take your little ones. We heard him try to offer that a few chapters ago. No, Moses says, we're all going to go, Pharaoh. All, all right, he comes back this time. Pharaoh says, fine. You and your little ones can go, but don't take any of your flocks and your herds with you. They need to remain behind. Now, Pharaoh has surely picked up by now, surely, that if Israel left, she ain't coming back. And so he thought, well, if I can, if I can keep behind some kind of collateral, something valuable that they need, like, like their livestock, that will force them to return. That'll, that'll prevent them from an utter exit Moreover, he's still trying to prevent them from rightly worshiping. Did you catch that? Pharaoh knew that the Israelites would need to worship God by offering burnt sacrifices in the wilderness. He'd already argued about this with Moses back in chapter 8. 
with the, the fourth plague and the flies. What's more, Moses tells him as much here in verse 25. No, Pharaoh, we need to take our animals with us because we need to worship the Lord and offer sacrifices. Verse 26, our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. Pharaoh knew. He he knew what he was supposed to do, but he would not yield. Verse 24, then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. He knew exactly what God wanted from him. He knew who had sent the darkness. He knew God's covenant name, Yahweh or Lord. He he knew that he was supposed to let God's people go. He even knew the purpose for their exodus, for their leaving, so that the Israelites could go and worship their God aright. But no, he still would not yield control to God. Still caught in the delusions of his own sovereignty, the delusions of his own power. He sins yet further by refusing to let the Israelites worship God rightly. His heart was still chained in wicked and damnable darkness. But do notice yet again, in this miracle, who is not, who is not in darkness? The Israelites were not in the dark. And this is part of the miracle. As with the earlier plagues, God discriminated. And we mean that in a good way. He discriminated between his people and Pharaoh's people. You see there in the latter half of verse 23, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived, referring to the whole land of Goshen, this suburban region, if you like, where the Israelites lived. This thick, heavy, blinding, suffocating blackout only afflicted the Egyptians. Like the fourth and the fifth and the seventh plagues, and I'm persuaded all the plagues by implication, Goshen is protected Goshen is protected, Israel is protected, while Egypt is ravaged. This this miracle is almost impossible to imagine. Egypt, the kingdom of Egypt, swallowed in this suffocating darkness, not even getting up out of their their beds in a, a miserable, resigned listlessness. And yet somehow, there's this there's this region about an hour or so away from the city center, and there is brilliant daylight. Have you ever, you ever been in a weather phenomenon where it's, it's sunny where you are, but just down the street or just across the river, there's this torrential thunderstorm and you see rain showers and lightning and thick black storm clouds over there, 100 yards off, but where you are, it's sunny and bright and blue skies as if nothing is happening? Something like that, but on an infinitely greater scale is what Israel might be viewing The Israelites can go and see and go about their day and they can probably look out on the horizon and and they can see this impenetrable blackness all outside their region covering Egypt. But the Egyptians can't see out of their darkness. They they can't see this region encapsulated as it was, almost like a, a domed region of sunlight in the midst, this column, this shaft of light in the midst of terrifying night for miles around as far as the eye could see. But it's more than just a miracle of physics and nature. It's indicative of spiritual reality. Scripture loves to employ physical phenomena as a kind of visual metaphor conveying theological truth. 
Light, as you might know, represents truth. It represents beauty. It represents purity. This symbolism runs right through the scripture. Scripture says, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. 1 John 1, verse 5. It says that God's word is a light shining in a dark place. 2 Peter 1, verse 19. Sinners are called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk, therefore, as children of the light. Ephesians 5, verse 8. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. Matthew 4, verse 16, quoting Isaiah. That the tug of war of light versus darkness, of sin versus God's ways, is always being played out. Temptation to sin and resistance to sin that God's children have. And here in this plague, that struggle is played out in the way that Pharaoh tempts Moses and tempts the people of Israel to compromise, to spiritual compromise. Verse 24, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. He was ready. Do you notice Pharaoh was ready to give Moses almost, almost everything he asked for. And you can sympathize with the Israelites who might have been tempted to take him up on the offer. It had been over 400 years of slavery. They were ready to get out. Pharaoh had made their lives more miserable since Moses had started his confrontations with Pharaoh. Disasters are raining upon Egypt left and right. They're probably, the Israelites are probably, the objects of the Egyptians' anger and scorn. Egyptians looking hatefully at Israel, blaming them for the misery that's befalling them. Israel is more than a little uncomfortable in this situation. They're probably ready to go. He's saying we can go? We can even take our children? Fine, let's go. Don't worry about the animals. Yeah, we need animals for sacrifice, but we'll figure that out later. We'll we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. God's providing us a window of opportunity here. Let's take it. Let's get out of here. But isn't that the way it always is with temptation? Did God really say think of the sad legacy of the kings of Israel and Judah. We need to get rid of all the high places and all the Asherah poles? How about most of them? Surely that'll be sufficient. Think of our own lives. I need to render my whole life as unto the Lord. That The whole of this day, this Lord's day, belongs to him? Well, okay, fine, I, I live for the Lord on Sunday. Can't Friday night just be my chance to blow off a little steam for me? Just a little. High school students, college students, you'll be faced and pummeled with this temptation all the time. All the time. Ask the Lord to help you to stand firm and to stand true to Christ. It's just a little white lie. It's just a a little fudging of the numbers. Is it really going to hurt anyone? I, I, I need to forsake all others when I take vows to my wife? What's a little glance at something now and then? A small peek at this website. I I clicked away very quickly. Moses understood that with God it is all or nothing. And he insisted that Pharaoh meet his demands. Moses was not negotiating. He was giving orders. I wonder if you caught that tone in the text here. Literally what he said to Pharaoh there in verse 5, excuse me, 25, is you will, you will allow us to offer sacrifices. As scripture has told us so many times before, God had called Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt. 
It was not enough for God's people to worship God while they stayed in Egypt. Not enough for the men to go without taking their families, as Pharaoh suggested. Not enough for the people to go without taking their possessions, as Pharaoh suggested. God commanded Moses to bring everyone and everything and get out of Egypt. This is what God always demands. Everything we have and everything we are. Moses understood the demands of discipleship. Pharaoh would not get to keep so much as one hoof of one horse, do you see? As one man put it, the heart of darkness tries to get God to lower his terms. But those who come into the light offer their hearts to God. Close quote. A heart captured by the grace of God, brothers and sisters, will say, I don't know how much God will require me to give. I don't know how costly it will be to serve God in terms of my time, my talents, or my suffering. But what I do know, to quote Paul, is I may suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So, a religion of darkness, a heart of darkness, but then thirdly and very briefly, this plague is a prelude of darkness yet to come. Closer to Pharaoh, it is ominously pointing to the next plague that will befall Egypt, the most dark and devastating of all, the death of the firstborn, the great slaying which passes over Israel on account of the blood of the Lamb. It was the great judgment that fell upon Egypt, such wailing throughout the land, but enraged Pharaoh still, he still would not take heed, and he would eventually pursue the Israelites all the way into the Red Sea to the destruction of his armies. Darkness is coming, Pharaoh. Heed the words of Moses. Heed God's warning. But further from Pharaoh, this plague points to the even greater reality yet to come. When at last Christ shall come again, treading out the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, Revelation 19.15. Coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the tribe of the earth will wail on account of him. Revelation 1, verse 7. The point is, judgment is coming. And for those souls still lost in darkness, for lovers of darkness and sin, it will be a day of mournful wailing. Moses bears God's message, and the only chance to hope, the only chance of hope is to heed God's word. And how does Pharaoh respond? Well, you see it there in verses 28 and 29. Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. How many people do we know that effectively by their life and by their words and by their action are saying the same thing? Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. I want nothing to do with these warnings from God that you bring to me. But, dear friends, but there is a land of refuge in Egypt. Goshen. You see that? There is light. There in Goshen is light, and there are the people of God. And in Goshen, there is safety. In the land of the people of God, there is safety. Pharaoh, heed Moses. And you, dear friend, heed the words of Christ. Come to Christ where there is safety. There is refuge in Zion, in Emmanuel's land, among the people of God. Here among God's people, there is pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Heed the call of Christ. Come out of darkness and come into his marvelous light. You say, but I've failed. I've succumbed to temptation. I haven't rendered to God everything that I am and everything that I have like you were just describing a moment ago. I've failed in those areas. I've sinned against God in those areas. 
Well, dear friends, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ, the righteous. There is a land of refuge. There is shelter. There is cleansing, and there is forgiveness, and there is redemption. It is in Christ. Oh, come to him. There is safety in the people of God. Come to Emmanuel's land. Praise God for his word to us today from Exodus chapter 10. Bless him, and may he seal it to our hearts for our everlasting good. Let's all pray. Lord, we do bless you for your word. And truly, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.